Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Dan and Tamson, Tamson and Dan re- reading the paper. I almost got a promotion there for a second. Yeah. Dan and Tamson. Maybe we should think about that. Okay. That sounds good. All right. All right. So here we hey, are. We've got to say what day it is. What day is it? It's March 13th, March Sunday, th- March 13th. 2022. All right. So we, we you know. We I know should... you're in a hurry. No, I'm not in a hurry. But I just do want to um, acknowledge that last week would have been your father's. Hundredth birthday, March eighth. March eighth. Ralph. Hundredth anniversary, anniversary of his birth. Yeah. Okay. Okay. March eighth. Also, 8th, uh, happy birthday to my friend Nancy Ferguson. Also March eighth. Okay. So now, now we're ready to rock and roll. All right, but... we're rocking and rolling. I'm not rushing. No rush. So we do have an article that again is is marginally related or somewhat related to the Ukraine situation, which is not in our bailiwick, honestly. Um, but. Um, we happen to be uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, a week or so ago for a hockey game. And their star player is Alex Ovechkin, who is um, one of the biggest stars in hockey. Some would say he's the biggest of all time. He's certainly in the top five. And, um, and he's Russian. And he's Russian. And he's Russian. And he's always been identified as a supporter of Putin's. Uh uh, so much so that he started an online social movement in 2017 to support Putin winning the 2018 election. Not that Putin needed the help. So he's been closely aligned with Putin, at least in the public's mind and on social media. Well, um, that's a little awkward night right now, to say the least. Uh, and um, the Times uh, has an article uh, about uh, how he's being received in the NHL and how the other Russian players are being received at the various NHL venues. I, I should say this, notwithstanding that Ovechkin's identified with Putin, he did put out a statement which said, quote, I'm not in politics, I'm an athlete. Please, no more war, which was interpreted, I think, fairly as his being against the Ukraine war, notwithstanding that he's aligned with Putin in some ways. That said, some people feel he could have done more. Apparently, on his Instagram account, uh, there was prominently featured a photo of, of him with Putin. And uh, he did not take that down. He has not taken that down, even though people have called for him to take it down. And the reason seems obvious to people that there would be uh, ramifications for his family at home in Russia if you were to take measures of that sort. So it's interesting to see uh, how folks react to Ovechkin. Uh, and uh, the Times wrote about a game in uh, Edmonton um, that was scheduled for just the other day and is now taking place. It took place last Wednesday. Edmonton obviously being a, a hockey city in the NHL. And here's something I did not know. Edmonton is home to 160,000 people of Ukrainian descent. There are 370,000 Ukrainians in Alberta. There are roughly 1.4 million people of Ukrainian background in Canada, more than anywhere outside the Ukraine and Russia. Hmm. So it is a, a very hot-button issue there. Right. And as the Times writes, um, he, uh, you know, there was some interest into how the, the folks in Edmonton would react to Ovechkin when they played. And, uh, you know, things were under control. There was some display of support for the Ukrainian uh, regime during the game. And every time Ovechkin uh, touched the puck, he was booed loudly. Um, uh, The game actually went in overtime. Edmonton won. 
But it is interesting to me, I didn't realize uh, the connection between the NHL and the Ukraine because there are so many Ukrainians in uh, Canada. As a matter of fact, um, Gretzky, the great Wayne Gretzky, the great one who played for Edmonton, has come out saying that the uh, Russians should be barred from having an entry in the Junior League tournament coming up uh, next year. And uh, he's feeling very strongly that, and, and, you know, people debating both ways, is it fair to penalize the kids? And he said, yes. So, um, but what's interesting, too, is that we went to that game two weeks ago in Washington, D.C., a very political city. Right. Uh, And we were curious how Ovechkin would be received. And they have a tradition there, according to Sadie, our expert in all manners hockey, that he's so popular that when they play, sing the national anthem, Oh, say, uh, can you see, they shout, oh, very loudly as a signal even before the game begins of their support for Ovechkin. So the question was, would they do that uh, under these circumstances? And the answer, as you know, is yes. The fans in D.C., notwithstanding uh, a palpable opposition to the war in D.C. in a very political city, were totally behind Ovechkin. Uh, they shouted encouragement from the beginning. And they went crazy when he scored a goal in the game. Yeah, we did not hear any boos. No, no boos. Just the opposite. So that was kind of interesting to me. I mean, again, this is the U.S., this is not Canada. Um, So, I mean, that was just interesting that we happened to be there in the first game he played uh, following the uh, Ukrainian uh, invasion. And uh, so they're taking it differently in D.C. than they are in Edmonton. So just a point of interest. Okay. Uh, but you had another point about... Uh, well, uh, there are a fair amount of businesses in the U.S. Yeah. which come under the title of Russian businesses, right. Russian restaurants or whatever. In some cases, they're actually owned by Ukrainians right. or largely employ mm-hmm. Ukrainians. Right. And some of those businesses, people are uh, boycotting them or bad-mouthing them. And Ukrainian people in addition to Russian people. Yeah. Um, not not generals or presidents right. are being hurt right. uh, by the boycott. So it's a complicated subject. Yeah. Well you told me that the Russian tea room is, is owned now by Ukrainians. You know, you're repeating that in public. Uh, I not think clear that's on? what I heard. I don't know. I didn't I didn't okay. vet that. But well, that would be an example but, if that uh, were that's, true. That's what they said on TV. Yeah and um, no one's in the so, Russian tea yeah. room now. So that um, there you go. Okay. So that's an example, yeah. perhaps. Um, anyway, so uh, also in uh, Canada, uh, there's a article in the New York Times about uh, a um, famous political personage, Hazel McCallion, who uh, celebrated, uh, I guess, uh, this past Valentine's Day, her 101st birthday. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, she's retired now, but she was the mayor of Mississauga, Ontario, a suburb of Toronto um, for 36 years. Uh, And uh, she's, you know, quite a political figure. And interesting for a couple of points, all right? Uh, she was born in Quebec, yeah. and uh, she grew up during the Great Depression. She was the youngest of five children. She left home during the Depression to go to 
Montreal and Quebec City and uh, finish her education. And she ends up getting a job in Montreal uh, managing an engineering firm. And uh, in Montreal, on the side, she actually played professional ice hockey. Right. So this is what's stunning about this to me. I'm reading this and they say, I'm saying, well, I don't understand when she played hockey. She's 101. She must have played when she was in her 60s because they haven't had women's ice hockey that 1940 long. 1940 to 42. So I was completely wrong. There was wrong. a professional I league. I thought you were the first women's <laughs> hockey player in existence. And it turns out 30 years or so before you played ice hockey, they were playing in a women's league in Canada. No, this is And this is just funny. She, she says she, got, uh, she started out getting $5 a game. Which is more than you got. Yes. <laughs> well, I didn't play professional. <laughs> but anyway, she lost yeah. at least two teeth. Oh, God. And she figures that uh, all in all, uh, taking into account the the dental expenditures, she about broke even. Oh, my well, she But then she... They, then you she know gets, why that is? But they, then she gets they, transferred to um, by have, the engineering firm to that's, that's, that's Toronto. Stupid. It's because they have national health insurance in Canada. That's she the, gets transferred to yeah. Toronto. Yeah. And there's no professional women's league mm. in Toronto. You can imagine that. So, but it, she does credit to some of her toughness, yeah. etc., from uh, playing ice hockey. And you know, we always agree that playing sports teaches you a lot of life yeah. lessons and a lot of management lessons yes. and the ability I, to bounce back. I attribute and a, to, a lot of your toughness to playing hockey. And if anything, if you would play a little less hockey, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, uh, things might be even better. But really? Anyway, yes, but really. Uh, yeah. You know, you could always go for one of those dainty figure skating girls. That's fine. Uh, that's too, fine. If that's what you want to do. I think find. the die is cast there. Uh, okay. But, uh, uh, anyway, she, still, uh, she um, uh, spends most of her time now. She still she gets up at uh, 5.30 a.m. Yeah. Well, sounds more and more like you. She goes over. Morning. There's an exhibition about her yeah. in a local mall. And she goes over and uh, supervises the exhibition. Yeah. But uh, interesting, she started her political political career at about age fifty seven. Yeah. So another new hero. Now she's she's no shrinking violet. No. And uh, you know, people people have comments about her uh, political strategies, but uh, she's a tough cookie. Hats off to her. To contrast the Trudeau. Uh, Okay, so we've been watching, believe it or not, Reacher. Reacher is the, I think, fairly described action series on Amazon uh, based on the first Lee Child book. Lee Child wrote this whole series with Reacher as the main character. That first book's called The Killing Floor, Lee Child series being enormously successful and previously made into two movies, in both cases starring Tom Cruise. That was controversial because Reacher, as written in the book, is this oversized, you know, huge figure. and Huge, uh, invincible figure. Exactly right. Which and is probably how Cruz sees himself. It must be, because it doesn't make any I sense. I think every man sees himself that way. Well, I certainly do. So, <laughs> I, so that's why I go for so the series. So that's where we're watching it. You, you are highly empathizing and identifying with oh, Reacher. There's just no question about it. I don't, I don't shrink for that at all. But let me give you a few... Uh, Stats here. Um, Reacher, it turns out, is the first, it's such a success, it's the first Amazon video series to top uh, Nielsen's streaming service rankings. Okay? That's how what a huge hit it is. Uh, it got 90% of Rotten Tomatoes, as I told you, which is hard to believe. And uh, guess what? The audience skews male. 58% male. 
particularly 1834 and 35 to 45. That's the demographic. Uh, how would you describe it, dear? Not, not that interesting. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it was okay. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very violent. Yeah, it's very the, violent. The bodies pile up. Yeah. The bodies continue to pile up, and no one ever stops to say, who did this? Yeah. You know, no one's ever coming after. No, it's, it's like... It, a, the only time someone is coming after Reacher for a murder yeah. is at the beginning when he didn't do it. Right. But he kills a lot of people. Afterwards. And nobody bats an eyelash. <laughs> so, and, and, and uh, you know, the the, um, the dialogue is not yeah. it's impressive. Like a, it's like a, an action comic coming to life. That one reviewer describes Reacher, I think this is fair, as a tall uh, drink of brackish water which I think is a good description, a mind-melting presence. He's this huge guy, lumbering guy. It's not really sophisticated uh, theater. Here's how it, 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 to me, and we discussed this before, it's like a comic book in this way. Uh, You know, he's always fighting. He's taking on five, six guys at the same time. No trouble. And then what happens is it gets down to one-on-one because he dispatches the first four guys. And the one-on-one... Fight is Reacher on the one hand, this huge guy, against some guy who looks like he's an undernervous 18-year-old. And Reacher has terrible trouble winning the last one, and which is just like the Batman comics I told you. Batman takes out 20 guys, and then it's him and the Joker, and he gets the tar beat out of him by a guy in a clown suit. It doesn't make any sense. That's the way comics are. It is every comic uh, convention. In any event, if you're into that, it's kind of mindless. As a matter of fact, it's not kind of mindless. It's totally mindless. And uh, and yet, but it may be if you're enjoyable. in the demographic. For those of us in the demographic, it was <laughs> fun. All right, so I, I didn't want to jump you on the Audible article. A very interesting article about that. Well, you know, I love Audible because I, I highly enjoy listening to books. Yeah, books and I'm listening tape. to all kinds of books that I wouldn't necessarily read, and uh, you know, perhaps a little bit less so now that I'm not doing so much commuting yeah. and have the long drives. Right. But I still, you know, when I'm exercising or, or doing mindless activities, like folding laundry, uh, I'm still listening to stuff. And uh, the article in the New York Times uh, Arts and Leisure section is about Audible's pivot from the page to the stage. Mm-hmm. And that they are recording more and more um, plays. Yeah. In some cases, getting into original plays and even musicals. Right. Which uh, seems crazy. Yeah. And they apparently, um, so just the history of Audible, in case you don't know, it was founded in uh, 1995 uh, by Donald Katz and sold to Amazon in 2008 for 300 million buckos. And uh, so it's, um, uh, they've been doing plays for a few years and... uh, when they got to the idea of original content, um, the um, Katz was encouraged to uh, go with playwrights as opposed to screenwriters, mm. and uh, you know, really trying to uh, tell uh, you know interesting narrative stories. Also, thinking that playwrights uh, probably need the money, right? So they've got all kinds of interesting stuff coming down the pike. They also. Uh, the pandemic yeah. spurred this to some extent mm-hmm. because uh, theaters were not uh, producing in person, and they actually uh, did a whole 
series. Where was it? Um, uh, now I've lost. Oh, it's in it. Providence, I thought. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. So they yeah. were. Yeah, in Providence. They, the it's this is pretty fascinating. I mean, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it's a way to you know sort of support the arts in a sense. The idea that they're they're supporting plays which really can use some support, and some of them are experimental. And the example they give is they supported the new production of Long Day's Journey uh, into the Night, which is the O'Neill play, which wasn't terribly well received, but it was always experimental. And uh, yeah, It was adapted, yeah. it was shortened. Yeah, it was yeah. really changed quite a bit. It only ran for a very short time, I think five weeks, and, uh, and but it was further supported because they recorded it. Now... The second thing is that radio plays have been around for a long time. I don't know if you had this experience, but when I was in junior high school, we studied radio plays a little bit. They had no, us, we did never. Yeah, they had us do a radio play. They had us write really? a radio play. That's interesting. It was, you know, I was in a school that was a little traditional, but in any event. Uh, uh, but radio plays aren't the same as acting a play and recording because radio plays were written for the radio. So they were things like all kinds of sound effects in there. Yeah. And it, it was really scaled to be a totally auditory experience. Uh, this is not that. I mean, it could be that. But uh, the idea of just taking a play and performing it and listening to it, yeah. I'm not saying it's, good, it's, it's any way less uh, compelling than a radio play, but it is different. And the right. question is whether that's a viable proposition. Right. If it is, it is a way to support... Uh, a lot of theater, which uh, needs to support. And just uh, one more point. Yeah. Um, in terms of the revenue. Yeah. So Audible depends on people's subscriptions, right. okay, not box office. Right. So this may give them the opportunity to be, uh, take more risks, uh, be more experimental, yeah. um, et, et cetera. So, um, you, know, you know, kind it, of it's interesting. It's very promising. Very yeah. promising, yeah. yeah. All right. Ah, off to the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah. Right. Article in the review section of the Wall Street Journal under Masterpieces, which you know I always love to read, about the Biltmore House. Mm-hmm. All right. The fabulous mansion designed by Richard Morris Hunt for George Washington Vanderbilt. Okay. Who um, I think uh, commissioned it when he was like in his thirties. Okay. And uh, he went, he uh, had been to uh, North Carolina with his family uh, when he was a bit younger. Was gobsmacked by the landscape uh-huh. and wanted some kind of mansion down there. We think of the Vanderbilts. We think of New York. We think of Newport, Newport etc. Yeah. Um, but uh, he commissioned. Uh, um, Hunt to build something. Hunt gave him all kinds of ideas, uh, colonial, Tudor, Italianate. Uh, then the two of them go to France and uh, look at the chateaus mm-hmm. and uh, boom, uh, get an eye, uh, get an idea uh, for what this should look like. And Sadie and I, in fact, have been to Bois. Uh, where there are various details like this stone staircase that uh, if Sadie looks at this, she would uh, recognize it immediately. In France. In France, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's it's a fabulous, fun place. Took the kids there many years ago, maybe... We're talking about France now? Or the no, Biltmore to uh, Biltmore. Okay. Uh, really fun. It's the largest uh, private residence in the U.S., 250 mm. 
rooms. So it really is a fun place to look around. Uh, Zeke especially loved the gardens, right. which brings to mind the other great uh, American artist collaborator on this. Uh, Olmsted, right? Yes, Frederick Law Olmsted mm-hmm. worked uh, with Hunt to design, uh, you know, uh, wonderful gardens, wonderful sort of uh, experiences, landscape experiences leading up to the mansion. So that's always a great place to be. Even um, my brother Bryce, okay, actually had uh, like uh, a, a family membership to the Biltmore. Oh, you're kidding. Because he thought it was a fun place to go. And uh, you get, I, I don't know if it's a subscription or a membership, what it's called, but uh, you can go back again and again at a very reasonable cost with your family. I mean, 250 rooms, there's a lot to see. Also, in uh, the kind of. Um, Museum update section. Mm -hmm. We have a new exhibition at the Baltimore Museum called Guarding the Art, and it opens March 27th. What's fun about that is that you talk about the guards in museums, Mm -hmm. and uh, having been to a lot of museums and having friends who go to museums, people talk about sometimes... The best information comes from the guards. Sometimes you have the best conversation about a painting or a work of art by talking to the guard who's there mm-hmm. and has stared at this mm-hmm. for many, many hours. And uh, what the um, the Baltimore Museum did was line up uh, guards as guest curators to choose the art. They worked in pretty much every facet uh, of the process, research, conservation, designing the displays, uh Writing the labels. Mm-hmm. And uh, this exhibition is a reflection of that. Now, different guards have different perspectives on what they thought was important to show. Uh, one or two of the guards are actual artists on their own. So they're looking really? for different things. One guard chose a work that was not even on view, um, knowing that a great a great deal of art doesn't get on, on the museum walls. Right. Uh, and especially, I think... Uh, her art may never be on a museum wall. So it's a kind of shout out to that. Um, wonderful, interesting uh, piece uh, by Hale Woodruff, Woodruff uh, African-American, who uh, was never sort of appreciated until he went to France and painted. And then his art got noticed. Um, and then uh, interesting choice by a guard who was from... Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and was looking for Puerto Rican art to display. The museum didn't have any, but he found some pre-Columbian sculptures from Costa Rica, Colombia, and Ecuador that he chose. So it reflects uh, a lot of different uh, aspects of the guest curator's personality. It's kind of a fun exhibition. Okay. Guarding the art at well, Baltimore. Yeah, I've never asked the guard, but uh, it makes sense. The uh... Sometimes you don't even ask them. They just uh, they see you staring at something. They'll, they'll come up to you and say, have you ever noticed blah, blah, blah? Oh, really? Yeah. You know, I don't so... think I'm that approachable. I think you might be a little more approachable. It's never happened to me. Of course, I'm not hanging out in museums too much. Um, the baseball strike was settled. I know you're happy about that. Uh, and, you know, who, why go over the details? It's just dollars... It doesn't make much difference uh, to me, certainly. Uh, probably makes a difference to the people involved. Um, and we're going to have a full season. It's going to start on April 7th. That's all good news. 
Uh, point two is that now there's going to be a frenzy of free agent activity because the teams have not been allowed to sign free agents during the period that they were sort of frozen. And with just a few weeks before the season starting, you're going to get a lot of news about free agent signings. Uh, one of the things that was um, adjusted was the luxury tax. Um, there, there previously uh, had been a luxury tax of $210 million. What that means is there's no salary cap in baseball. But the closest thing they have is a luxury tax, meaning that if your total uh, salary uh, in the aggregate for a particular team goes over $210 million, you start paying a tax, uh, which is a disincentive to pay more in the aggregate than $210 million. Only the wealthiest owners would think about doing that. Well, the owners get wealthier, uh, and the the uh, players very much want to raise the tax thresholds because they want to see spending. They don't want disincentives to spending. So they negotiated higher thresholds, and now there's more than one threshold. So now the initial threshold, instead of being 210, is 230 million, but they have different levels. There's a different tax at 250 million, a higher tax yet at 270 million. It's like the income tax. And an even higher tax at 290 million. The thought being uh, that very few owners, if any, would ever think about spending more than 290 million, although one comes to mind, and that's Steve Cohen the owner of the Mets. <laughs> and that thought is so prominent in people's minds that 200, the $290 million threshold is nicknamed the Steve Cohen tax. <laughs> All right? And Steve Cohen, Harry Zerlin said this to me, apparently is quoted as saying he'd rather have a tax named after him than a bridge. <laughs> and I said, as I responded to Harry, I said... Do you think this guy writes his own material? Because he's uh, he's a pretty funny good. guy. It's pretty good. So there he goes. The $200 million, $90 million, the Steve Cohen tax. More power to him. I think uh, he doesn't mind it. We'll see what happens. And that's going to get some new free agents. All right. If you're looking for, uh, you know, sort of early 20th century uh, reading, yeah. mid-20th century reading taking place in, in England, um... You might uh, go to Angela Thurkel. Okay. And uh, the Wall Street Journal has a review of a biography of her, Angela Thurkel, A Writer's Life by Anne Hall. Right. It's a digestible 160 pages, but it's a little, it's a, it's a, I'm a little shocked by the cost, $37.95. Really? It uh, seems it must have some really terrific pictures, yeah. is all I can say. Um, she's uh, famous for a variety of sort of, uh, you know, um, English countryside novels. Um, and she um, she's kind of uh, takes, you know, inspired, I guess, by Trollope. If you like Trollope, if you like Barbara Pym... Nancy Mitford, E.F. Benson, uh, you might want to give her a look. She's interesting because she was born in 1890 into a bohemian family turned respectable. Her grandparents were the pre-Raphaelite painter Edward Byrne-Jones and his wife Georgiana, also an artist. You, You will... Remember that my senior thesis at Princeton yeah. was uh, on a stained glass window designed by Edward Burgess. Of course I would remember. Okay. How could I not remember uh, right. that? Um, uh, one of Georgiana's sisters, one of her mother's sisters, 
uh, becomes the mother of Stanley Baldwin, the prime minister. Another becomes the mother of Rudyard Kipling. Okay. Wow. Her um, godfather was J.M. Barrie. Wow. Peter, Peter Pan. Pan. Sure. Yeah. Even okay. I know that. Yeah. John Singer Sargent yes, painted her portrait. Well, there you go. Okay. These are big names. So she's a she's a big name. Uh, she gets married. She has a couple of marriages. Her second marriage, um, she ends up uh, going off to Australia, which she apparently hated. And it seems like Australia hated her too. Uh, but uh, she was really quite snobby about... Um, uh, you know, the people she wrote about, which were, in many cases, not unlike Nancy Mitford, the people of her own sort of yeah, well, look, milieu. The, the test okay. and stuff like that is always whether the comedy survives, whether it still and resonates. She based on, and yeah. she based her characters on yeah. various family members and oh, acquaintances. Oh. And her cousin, Rudyard, highly disapproved oh, of her using the family material. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, Angela Thurkel, uh, you know, this, it's, it's a big article in the journal. I'll it's say a that. big article. Um, and, uh, you know, apparently she was uh, kind of an annoying person. Well, the test is the And she did not have a great relationships, uh, with her kids. Um, one of her sons, I guess she eventually leaves, just ups and leaves, Australia. She must have taken her son with him because she event he eventually come becomes head of the BBC. So uh, well, listen. Are you recommending the book? Uh, I've never read it? the books. Okay. 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 But the, the, the book that they're writing about is a book about her. Honestly. Well, they say it's interesting, but it's thirty-seven dollars. Oh, okay. Forget it. So I don't know. I'm there's a quote. There's a it's quote a from idea. her at the top of the the review. It is rather depressing to think that one will still be oneself when one is dead. But I dare say one won't be so critical then. Okay. Got Angela Thurkell. Yeah. A Writer's Life by Annie Hall. Right. Anne Hall. So um, I wanted to close with this story, which I, I told you, but I found out more details about, which just struck me as the most amazing theater story ever. As I told you, I was listening to an interview with Rob McClure. And uh, Rob McClure... He's been on Broadway. He's a musical theater performer. He happens to be from Bergen County. Uh, he was starring in Mrs. Doubtfire, which is now on hiatus. Uh, he's been in Beetlejuice. Uh, he starred in Honeymoon in Vegas. He also starred famously in Chaplin, where he got the Tony for Best uh, Actor. Um, so, you know, he's a little bit of a figure, maybe even more than a little okay. bit. Um, and he told a story about his experience in small theater. And I think this is the Paper Mill Playhouse that he was talking about when he was young. And he's, uh, I think he was in Noises Off then. He was uh, with Jud, Jud Hirsch and Ben Vereen. He was sort of a lesser character. Um, but he was just a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and, and at the same time, they contracted him to do this other play kind of simultaneously. It's a whole shaggy dog story. But part of it is that in this other play, uh, he's sharing... Uh, a dressing room for the purpose of a single change with an older actor who's in the place more prominent than him. Uh, and he goes by to make sure it's okay with that guy. And that guy turns out to be Eddie Bracken. And Eddie Bracken is pretty well known or was pretty well known. He was a musical comedy guy. Uh, he was in Summerstock, which is a well-known movie with uh, Gene Kelly and uh, Judy Garland. He started in films 
when he started in films, he started at the same time as Mickey Rudy and Judy Garland. Before that, he was for years in vaudeville, mm-hmm. old-timey guy. And he says to Bracken, listen, I hope you don't mind. I know I'm, I'm nobody and you're already Bracken, but, you know, I'm just going to jump in for a quick change. And A. Bracken says, you know something, that's part of the business is perfectly fine with me. I can tell you that when I first started in the business, uh, I was in a similar situation to you. And I was told to, uh, in, you know, uh, use the dressing room of, of a famous older actor. Uh, same thing. And I had to ask permission. That guy's named Harry Hawk. Do you know who Harry Hawk is? Do you, do you remember Harry Hawk? And Ron McClure says, uh, no. No, who's Harry Hawk? And Abe Bracken says, uh, Harry Hawk uh, was performing at the Ford Theater the night Lincoln was assassinated. <laughs> 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 Which is... And I'm, and I'm going, what? That's an older actor. Right. right? But think about this. is This is contemporary. But Chloe's telling this story. And I'm saying to myself, could this be right? So I actually looked it up. It turns out that it's true. Harry Hawk was performing. It's April 14th, 1865 in the play Our American Cousin um, at the Fourth Theater. He was the only performer on the stage at the moment that Lincoln was assassinated. Really? Uh, and it was a comedy. And what happened was just before uh, Gunshot rang out, um, there was the biggest laugh in the play. Mm-hmm. And he remembered, he was interviewed later, he remembered he got a huge laugh from Mrs. Lincoln. And he mm-hmm. even heard, he was aware that Abraham Lincoln was there. He thought he heard Abe Lincoln laugh too. But she was laughing wildly and the whole audience was laughing wildly. Mm-hmm. And it is theorized that John Wilkes Booth, the actor who shot Lincoln, Knew this, knew that was the biggest laugh line, and it was an opportunity for him to jump to in and surprise people, yeah. right? Because the, the sound drowned out. Well, on top of that, what happens is Booth shoots Lincoln, jumps down from the box onto the stage. Um, Hawk is there. Hawk knows Booth. Okay, because they're both actors. They're both actors. He saw him that day and spoke to him. Uh-huh. All right. Oh my God. He's particularly friends with Edwin Booth, who's John Wilkes Booth's better known brother, yeah. actor also. He sees Booth, and Booth has a knife with him, and he goes running. He thinks Booth, he doesn't even know who Booth shot. He thinks that Booth is running after him with a knife. So then panic ensues. Uh, of course, it follows that they, you know, they got Booth, but uh, he was actually de- detained uh, with all kinds of questions, and, you know, mm-hmm. people know what went on. And, for a while, he sort of used a uh, false identity because he didn't want to be identified with the whole thing. And even years later, he would never talk about the uh, assassination out of respect for Edwin Booth because he remained his close friend. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and he was a very famous comic actor. So there you go. I mean, uh, how amazing is that story? That is amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing story. All right. So uh, there we go. Having amazed everybody. Uh, I was amazed. Uh, that wraps it up for this week. Yeah. Uh, until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff. It's been a busy, fun week. And you got to tell who you are. You're supposed and to. I'm Tamsin Granger. That's correct. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. We'll see you next week.